Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, North Carolina and transgender rights. Um, Richard, for the past month or so, the country has been sort of obsessed with this law out of North Carolina that requires people who are using restrooms and state facilities to use the one that corresponds with the gender on their birth certificate. The argument here being that in the confusion that arises over which facilities transgender people are supposed to use, you create an opportunity for mischief when people can use the bathroom of the opposite sex. Um, let's let's start here with the basics. Uh, there's a federal component to this now, but let's start at the state level in North Carolina. Does this strike you as something that needed a legislative response from the state where you do sort of crowd out some of the options that the private sector has to deal with this? Well, I mean I think what they were trying to do is to preempt the federal intervention and to some extent that's good. But of course what happens when you do this by legislation, you sometimes actually make the wrong choice. So um, we've had people with sex change operations since Christina Jorgensen or Christine Jorgensen many, many years ago and the uniform practice and that's situation is once a person changes his or her gender to the opposite, uh, you use the facilities of the one to which you're going. And, you know, the obvious case of this is Deidre McCloskey, formerly Donald McCloskey. It was a pretty good friend. And nobody thinks much about it if you do it in that particular fashion. The moment you pass the North Carolina statute, which talks about biological sexes, Deidre becomes Donald again for the purpose of the law. And if somebody actually knew who it, what was going on there, they would probably we say, sorry, Deidre, you've got to go back into the men's room. And, you know, this is just simply absurd. What we've done in this issue is to develop a set of customs that seem to work pretty well. And the great danger about legislation is that it misses the cases that really matter. And, and so what you do is you get this kind of over-response. If I were the state of North Carolina, I would essentially add a caveat in and see what it does, which says after a sex change operation takes place, uh, you then use the uh, sex of you know, the, the restrooms of the destination sex to which you have. So if you become female, female, become male, become female, uh, that gets rid of the greatest anomaly. But it certainly would not satisfy, I think, the warriors in the civil rights decision because there are very difficult cases that come up when you have people in transitional states. And it's not a sex change operation. It's something that takes place overnight. It it requires an enormous amount of psychological preparation. Then you have to have hormonal injections of one kind or another in order to ease the transition, major surgery, lots of work going on afterwards. So it's not as though you could change your sex the way you can change your political party. And I think people have to try and be respectful of that for people who are obviously going through very serious psychological transformations if they're willing to engage in this behavior. And the accommodation offered by the school, which is will give you a separate facility for yourself so that you don't have to feel awkward in the presence of either men or women, was rejected on the grounds I feel awkward if I'm left alone. And that's a degree of individual extra sensitivity, which I think when you're making accommodations, you really can't tolerate. So the second act of this now, as you've alluded to, is that the Federal Department of Justice and the state of North Carolina are suing each other over this. The DOJ saying that this is a violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Can you just explain for our audience kind of the DOJ's theory of the case and also what you make of it? 
Yeah, well, essentially what happens is you have a statute, and what it does in connection with Title IX is it says that any institution that receives federal funds is an institution that has to essentially be sex-blind with respect to the way in which it um, deals with uh, these particular problems. This has been on the books for a very long time. I'll just read the text to the reader so they can find it themselves. No person shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subject to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And this was designed to say, uh, by and large in the paradigmatic case, uh, that you can't tell women that they can't take graduate courses in math and chemistry because their minds are not subtle enough to do these all-male disciplines. I mean, and, you know, uh, it went down without a peep on that. Uh, the big problem with Title IX is what are you going to do in all of these things when it comes to the question about participation in athletics? And if you look at all of these statutes, if you simply say that sex is irrelevant, then you have no women's sports team. So immediately they switch from a colorblind standard or a sex-blind standard to an equal uh, pay or equal benefit standards. And what they do is they impose this incredible uh, system of quotas on everybody and completely wreck sports. Because what happens is in a natural state, uh, i.e. without the regulation, essentially uh, men tend to participate in sports, say, uh, almost twice as much as women, 65-35. And now what you've got to do is to bring that up to 50-50, which means you have to kick men out and you have to subsidize women who start to come in uh, with respect to intercollegiate sports. And the government essentially has done that. Instead of saying if you basically open up programs to women so that at the margin it costs you as much to fund the next woman athlete as it does the next male athlete, um, uh, if you did all of that, it would be fine. The statute doesn't take into account revenues. So what are you supposed to do with a football team, the revenues from which uh, basically fund everything on the male and female spot, which doesn't have a mass audience? Nobody ever thought about this. And so what you do is you get the government making ad hoc compromises and all the rest of it. The clear point is there's no place whatsoever for Title IX. Uh, today. In the cases where it's really needed, it's not needed at all because people will do it anyhow. And in the cases where the rubber hits the road, the federal government is always wrong. And so what they then do is they take this question about on the basis of sex and say, oh, that doesn't mean only biological sex. It could mean gender identity, a term nowhere heard of in the United States probably before the last five or ten years. And they read that back into the statute. They can't get it there by simply ordinary language. So what they say is they have to give deference to administration administrative agencies because of their expertise. Expertise in this context means partisan commitment to one side or another. It has nothing to do with technical difficulties in figuring out how you uh, interpret data sets of things like that. And what the court did in the case involving this uh, this boy-girl, uh, was to essentially say that we defer to what the federal government's interpretation of its own statutes and its own regulations turn out to be. And that, too, is a classic grants of overreach in which administrative agencies essentially go far beyond what the statute seems to say and far beyond what the Congress intended. If you had announced when Howard Smith put this up um, in 1964 when the battle coming up, oh, by the way, you're allowing in effect the sex to be taken into account. That means that transgendered people will do this, that, or the other thing. The bill would have been forthright um, dismissed. In fact, if you go look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it itself understands that sex and race are very different. That is, the sex justifications are much easier to come by because it has a provision largely read out of the statute by the Supreme Court, which says that in the employment context, not the educational conference, that bona fide 
you know, occupational qualifications, BFOQs as they're called, are good reasons for the discrimination between the two. Originally, that might have meant that you could have to have a woman play Ophelia and Hamlet by a man, uh, and there were other sorts of things, but the government essentially has read that to nothing, and the Supreme Court has gone along with it. So it's not just a question of the legislative branch and the executive branch failing. There's also a huge amount of stuff going on in the courts about which the less said, the better. So we've had about 50 years now, or actually a little more, of these federal civil rights laws. There's, a, I think, a broad sense, Richard, and one that you've expressed in the past that the sort of the first iteration of it, um, there was a lot more sense to than what came afterwards. I mean, could you trace the evolution for us? When did this start to go sideways? Well, um, the basically, let's sort of get the good sense. The if you go back to the original Civil Rights Act, the, essentially the bill was passed in order of importance, and so Title One deals with voting rights. And I think there is no sane person who would believe that it's appropriate to say to somebody, you're not allowed to vote because you're a racist black. And that was what they were trying to get rid of. And indeed, it was a long overdue and welcome return. It was trying to live up to the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments. Title II was on accommodation, and you know, the, on a public accommodations. And you know, the idea that you're going to force people into segregated hotels and so forth is also pretty ugly in terms of what it was. And there was unanimous support virtually for getting rid of these kinds of things. You know, go back and watch the movie uh, Driving Miss Daisy, and you see this married couple, and he pretends to be the chauffeur, and she sits in the back seat pretending to be the passenger in order to escape the Virginia police back in 1928 or whatever the year was. And you get a sense of the enormous degree of oppression uh, that started to take place. And so when you got to employment, I think the case is actually much weaker. Uh, what there clearly was, what a lot of sort of monopoly powerful industries which said women have to do this, men have to do this, whites can't work here, blacks can't work there. Much of it was state-sponsored segregation and getting rid of anything that is state-sponsored to allow markets to work, of course, is a blessing. And uh, requiring state governments to essentially pay equal wages for equal work to black and white employees in their various departments. And all these things are essentially no-brainers. This essentially takes us from about 1964 to about 1970. Then it gets much tougher. Starting in 1971, things start to go off the rails. And the first case that goes off the rails is the so-called adoption of the disparate impact theory, which says that in employment discrimination cases, even if it turns out that you have no racial motive, and even if you're using a test that actually helps you improve the composition of your workforce, unless there's a very strong business necessity, you're not allowed to use that test. And they get this out of a clear misreading of a statute. Uh, both on the text and on the legislative history. And it's a classic illustration of Justice Warren Berger, who was chief justice, straight out of central casting, not really knowing what he was doing and then having a very strong liberal majority going into it. So now, in effect, instead of having a statute which becomes less important, by virtue of the fact that most people understand that explicit racial discrimination doesn't matter, the statute becomes more important in more sorts of ways. A similar situation happens with respect to voting because the original statutes were designed to make sure that people could register and then the more modern implications that people are trying to develop in this area are trying to make sure that the way in which various kinds of districts are formed or the way in which new districts are created is going to be subject to constant oversight and so the voting act of 1965, as the problem becomes less, all of a sudden the level of government interference becomes most powerful, and the very strong left-wing movements essentially in the 1990s gets an extension of this thing for 25 years, and what are you going to apply it to? 
to public utility were elections done by bodies that never had segregative intent or segregative practices, and you put them through this elaborate preclearance provisions and so forth. So what you're doing is you're getting less and less, spending more and more. And when it comes to the sex stuff, uh, the moment you announce, instead of saying that you have to open up athletic teams for anybody who wants them, that you have to have an equal number of women and men, you require this massive wealth transfer across the situation. And so what you see is half the racing or half the wrestling teams in the United States are closed down. Men tracks teams have come down. In the name of equal participation in sports, the University of Illinois bars its swimming team for men and allows its swimming team for women. People actually looked and saw the complete wreckage that has been made of college athletics by this statute. They might think otherwise, but what you constantly hear are pious disclaimers. We don't want to shut down men's teams. We just want to increase women's teams. But of course, at this particular point, all the women who want to get into sports can do so most of the men who want to get into sports are going to be shut out and the great achievement of the title nine forces is to keep this massive imbalance in place uh, by a system of very dubious administrative extensions of the statute the terms of which i've just read to you so starting about 1970 to 1980 everything starts to go wrong put the obama administration in and everything goes wrong on steroids Okay, let me let me ask you this as sort of our, our closing salvo here. In in Richard Epstein's ideal world, how does this issue in North Carolina get sorted out? I mean, should there even be a role for the federal government here? There shouldn't even be a role for the state government in this particular case. Uh, what should have happened is what did happen. You get the bunch of school administrators, they look about this and say, this is a serious problem. Um, sending this poor child into the girls' room is going to create a lot of undue anxiety. Sending him into the boys' room is going to send a lot of protest. What we're going to do is make a compromise and spend a little extra money to find a separate facility. And the fellow says, I'm traumatized in this separate facility, to which the answer is at this point, tough. You're going to be traumatized no matter where you go because if you go into the men's room you will continue to subject leers insults and everything else this accommodation will solve it that's what they wanted and when both the state government and the federal government take a local administrator who actually knows what's going on in the ground and say you don't really understand it we have better wisdom it's again the arrogance of power uh, the justice department which is perhaps the current one is the worst justice department ever in terms of its general views on civil rights sex discrimination harassment and everything else now takes the lead again. And I regard that as unpardonable. And I think what the state legislature did was a serious overreaction. What they should have done was to pass a statute which says on dealing with matters of transcended students having to do with restrooms, we trust in the accommodations made by our local school boards. Would have been a lot better than having some statute which talks about the eternal truths of biological sex and then gets you into reckless and silly battles over whether or not somebody's gender identity is what you mean by sex when you're looking at uh, Title IX. And if it is for that, is it only for bathrooms? Does it cover locker rooms? Does it mean that any guy who wants to say he's a woman can now pry out for the female basketball team? We just don't know what's going on in this case. And the tragedy is the Justice Department just doesn't care. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.